What does conservatism in Canada mean today? The National Post has run a series of essays taking a look at that exact problem. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. We talked to former Stephen Harper policy advisor Sean Spear, who's a professor at the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, about how conservatism can remedy itself. Don't forget you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you get your audio. But please don't forget, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating and a review. So, Sean, a lot of discussion has been had in the couple of weeks since the federal election about the future of the Conservative Party and the leadership of Andrew Scheer. But, you know, I think that the essay that you wrote for the post kind of gets it some of the issues that are really need to be discussed around conservatism in Canada. Why do you feel that we need to have this discussion right now? This is far bigger than one leader or one campaign. And I, I wouldn't want my observations in any way to be interpreted as a critique of Mr. Shear or the conservative party's uh, 2019 election campaign in full transparency. I've been involved in and in past conservative party campaigns in, in 2008, 2011 and, and 2015. And so in some ways, uh, my comments reflect more introspection at my own experience and some of the the challenges that maybe in hindsight, I neglected, um, but that in a lot of ways, I think have have manifested themselves in the aftermath of the the 2019 campaign. It seems to me in a nutshell, uh, the biggest problem facing the Conservative Party of Canada is what you might call a ceiling problem. That is to say, the Conservative Party of Canada has the largest political base amongst the, the major national parties. We can quibble on what that that, that, that floor looks like, but it, you know, it seems to me it's something like 26, 27, 28 percent. The flip side is the, the, the ceiling is low. Uh, and again, mm-hmm. you might quibble on what, what that ceiling is, but it seems to me it's somewhere between uh, 36 and, and 42 percent. I think as a conservative, both big C and small C, that conservatism ought to aspire to be a 50% plus one proposition, you know, that our ideas are good, our ideas are right, and I think our ideas can can resonate uh, with a large share of the public. And so if you accept the premise that we have a ceiling problem in the political expression of conservative ideas, uh, I, I think the right debate to have now, and, and the National Post is facilitating such a debate, is not about Mr. Scheer, it's not about tactics in the 2019 campaign, it's about how do we address the ceiling problem and how do we make uh, conservatism in Canada a 50% plus one proposition? So what does conservatism, small c conservatism, mind you, what does small c conservatism look like in Canada in 2019? Well, I think one of the challenges, uh, I would say there's two challenges that uh, that conservatism faces today, uh, both of which are at the risk of sounding optimistic, which is not an inherently conservative persuasion. I, I think both can be remedied. <laughs> Um, the, the, the first is, uh, with respect to small-c conservatism, I think one of the problems is we've become complacent. Small-c conservatism has a lot of good answers with respect to economic and fiscal policy, with respect to the benefits of low tax rates, the benefits of limited government, and so on. But the problem, and this is something that I describe in, in my column uh, over, the, over the past weekend, is that we've, we've not sought to apply conservative insights to new and emerging questions. We keep fighting the old intellectual battles, and yet we've ceded the territory to the left on a range of issues that are relevant to Canadians. Childcare, 
homelessness, disruption in the labor market, all of these issues which are increasing climate change, all of these issues which are increasingly relevant and for which I think small seed conservatism uh, has failed to produce credible answers. Then the second is the second problem, again, that I think is remedi- remediable is uh, with respect to big C conservatism. I think in a lot of ways, the way we've gone ab- about expressing ourselves in politics has become too transactional. That is, we've made different transactional offers to different parts of the electorate, whether it's uh, uh, particular targeted tax cuts for families or tax cuts or tax credits for seniors or uh, or targeted tax proposals for students. Mm-hmm. And you really go down the list. And the, the problem is we, we've sort of lost the plot. We are engaged in this kind of transactional politics, and yet there doesn't seem to be any connective tissue, the bigger picture. And so I guess in some, the, the, the two challenges, both of which I think are resolvable and which I hope my column contributes to a, a broader discussion on is first, how do we apply conservative insights and principles to new and emerging uh, economic and social questions facing Canadian society? And then secondly, how do we uh, advance a political agenda that doesn't fall victim to transactional politics, that actually is aspirational, that, that connects the dots between various parties in a way that draws people to a conservative vision for Canada? Those, those are really the areas where I think conservatives, big C and small C, need to be dedicating themselves in, in the coming weeks and months. So you're you're suggesting that it's not not, uh, the idea of identifying issues that are conservative issues and really focusing on those. It's it looking what are the big picture issues in the country today, and trying to find conservative solutions to those problems. Precisely, correct. Precisely, conservative insights, conservative perspectives. Those are fixed. Those are enduring. But the issues for which we need to apply them, those are necessarily dynamic. You know, I, as I observe in, in the, the piece in the Post, political conservatism sort of came of age in the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. through Reaganism and Thatcherism. But we've come to focus on the policy programs of Reagan and Thatcher as opposed to looking at their methods. They were confronting a, a, a particular set of economic challenges facing their societies, economic stagnation, high inflation, a lack of economic dynamism. And so they applied conservative insights and first principles to that question. And out the other side came the policy programs that have become associated with these two leading figures on the right. Inflation targeting, trade liberalization, tax reductions, privatization, and so on. And so the lesson from Reagan and Thatcher is not to just continue to advance the specific policies that they were advancing in their time, but instead to learn from the, the method by which they went about applying conservative insights and and principles to a particular set of problems. And I I think we can do that now. In in some ways, I would say, for instance, in 2006 federal election, one of the main issues facing voters, the issue that the different political parties need to respond to was around childcare. And you'll remember that the left had a particular proposal in mind, a state-centric one that involved a national childcare policy. And Mr. Harper and the Conservative Party said, okay, how would we go about responding to the issue of childcare by applying first principles, including a focus on parental choice, a focus on subsidiarity, and so on. And out the other side came the universal childcare benefit. I think we need to do more of that, not less. And uh, I think if we do that, we will find that we'll have more political success, but as importantly, we'll have more intellectual success. That is to say, we'll be shaping and driving the political agenda 
as opposed to simply responding to the proposals from the left and, and, and so doing, letting them set the political agenda. Now, I, I know we said off the top, this isn't really a discussion about the 2019 election or, or criticizing the party leader, Andrew Scheer, or the, the campaign he ran, but he did try and offer solutions to things like climate change that these are issues that are, are big for Canadians and are newer and emerging issues. Um, and in a lot of cases, the people or people said, well, we don't necessarily buy into what he's selling. Is it a case that he wasn't presenting um, small C conservative suggestions for it or that the public on certain issues has moved away from them? In some ways, I do think the Conservative Party of Canada's platform did reflect this idea of applied conservatism. You know, uh, on the climate agenda, for instance, the conservative plan was was criticized by you know, climate policy scholars and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can agree or disagree with aspects of the plan. But embedded in it were some really interesting, innovative proposals. Uh, one good example is a, um, a preferred corporate tax rate or a preferential corporate tax rate for uh, green technologies uh, that I think could have been the catalyst for the type of innovation and research and development that is going to be fundamental to making progress on the climate. But I, I think more generally where the platform struggled, and again, um, this is not unique to the 2019 campaign. My fingerprints are on the 15 platform and it fell victim to the same problems and, and to a lesser extent, the 11 platform. Mm-hmm. We pursued a political strategy that was focused on putting forward uh, specific and discrete policies targeting different parts of the electorate. And you know, those particular proposals may have motivated those individuals. But for the rest of us, we were thinking, what's this campaign all about? What's the higher purpose? What animates this party? Um, because we couldn't see through these series of uh, transactional proposals. I think we need to do, I mean, as a, as a political matter, we need to do both. Obviously, we need to have uh, put forward policies that are responding to, you know, the perspectives and, and interests of of particular parts of electorate. But but more fundamentally, we need to put it in a package, in a vision that animates a larger share of the public that gets at the ceiling problem. One example that I raise in my essay, I am convinced that the, the biggest political economy fa- uh, issue facing our society is the transition from a goods producing economy, an economy of things, to an intangibles economy an economy of thoughts or ideas. It's producing um, significant bifurcation, um, not just in outcomes, but also in opportunity. And I think uh, it's ultimately going to be up to conservatives to develop a program that responds to these economic trends, that ensures that economic activity is broadly distributed across regions, and that individuals of different aptitudes or credentials or skills have a reasonable shot at opportunity. And, and, um, you know, it seems to me a a conservative program that was rooted in that fundamental question is the type of thing that, uh, that would respond to uh, a a set of issues that I, that I think are increasingly animating the electorate. Now, this idea of moving from a goods economy to an intangibles economy speaks to, uh, essentially what is a, a rural urban divide in Canada. It's mirroring what you can see in the States as well, where, you know, coal mining communities are, are gutted by economic slowdowns and, and job opportunities are, are seen more in 
urban centers. How can Canada on the whole address this issue to make sure that some of these people aren't left behind? I think this is, as I said, the most fundamental question facing our society. We've always had regional economic disparity. That's not that's not new. But what seems to be unique, and this has been the subject of various uh, academics uh, papers in the United States and, and here in Canada, is that the intangibles economy seems to uh, point in the direction of even more concentration, that there's even more clustering in a small number of places, what uh, some economists refer to as agglomeration. Think of uh, Silicon Valley or uh, New York or Boston or in, in the Canadian context, uh, Toronto. Mm-hmm. And so as more and more of our economic output and opportunity is concentrated in a small number of places, it seems to me it demands a policy response. And as I say in the column, I think it's going to be ultimately up to conservatives to produce that response. The the far left has no interest in trying to reform capitalism because they could just sit back and wait for people to grow so frustrated and agitated that they turn to socialism. And the center left is completely consumed by the innovative economy because of its concentration in urban centers, because it's greener, because it involves highly educated workers, because it's more urban. And so if you look at the electoral landscape, even in 2019, uh, it's conservatives who disproportionately represent the parts of the the country um, that aren't fully participating in the intangibles economy. And that's why, as I say, I think ultimately it'll be up to us. What that looks like as a policy program, I think, is, is, is where we need to dedicate our attention and our intellectual ammunition. I've written about recognizing the, the, the importance of the resource sector as a, as a bulwark against this tendency towards urban concentration. Mm-hmm. A paper coming out in a couple of weeks on Opportunity Zones, which is a, a, a new experiment in the United States to try to pull investment into undercapitalized parts of the United States. It, it seems to me this is, uh, as I say, the, the most important question facing um, our society. And if conservatives, instead of doing politics in a transactional way, commit themselves to some of these big macro questions, whether it's the urban-rural divide or whether it's catalyzing uh, higher levels of social mobility uh, or whether it's advancing an agenda around economic security. Whatever ultimately our higher purpose is, it, it, it seems to me we'll have more success in breaking through the ceiling and may, turning ourselves into a 50% plus one proposition if we tell people what's in our hearts, if we tell people what our higher purpose is, And then we outline a practical policy program to help make progress in that direction. The idea that there are certain segments of the population who may get left behind economically as the economy changes from a goods economy to an ideas economy, people kind of link that to the rise of political figures like Donald Trump and the rise of populism. And I'm just curious your thoughts on what that what challenge that presents to the conservative movement in Canada and how they work against certain forces like that? I, I think it's it's fundamental. Um, I would say if the Conservative Party in particular and the Canadian political class more generally doesn't recognize that some of the underlying dynamics that have contributed to disruptive politics elsewhere are present in Canada, if we don't uh, reconcile ourselves with with this fact um, and reorient our politics uh, towards what I've come to describe as Canada's forgotten people in forgotten places. I think it's inevitable that over time 
we observe a, a trend towards the type of disruptive politics we're seeing elsewhere. A big reason, to be honest, I know where you're in Alberta where we're having this conversation. The, the truth is, over the past 15 years or so, large swaths of Canada's economy has come to resemble parts of the American Rust Belt. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the reasons we've not experienced the type of disruptive politics that they have, in my view, is the has been the strength of Canada's natural resource economy. It has, for all intents and purposes, hoovered up a lot of the workers who have been dislocated in countries like the United States. Just, just one example, in Canada, in Alberta rather, uh, over the past 15 years, we've observed a convergence in levels of income between those with post-secondary qualifications and those without post-secondary qualifications. And everywhere else in Canada, uh, we didn't see a convergence. In fact, we saw hmm. a, a market divergence. And so for, in a lot of ways, Alberta has been a worker's paradise, particularly for the types of people who find themselves uh, looking from the outside in on the intangibles economy. And I think as the Conservative Party, as Conservative small C conservatives more generally, outline a vision for Canada's forgotten people and forgotten places, yes, of course, it needs to be concerned with intangible industries and where new wealth is being created, but it can't lose sight of the fact that traditional sectors like natural resources are fundamental in terms of um, producing economic inclusion and opportunity for Canadians without post-secondary qualifications and for others who, for whatever reason, have had a hard time um, participating in the intangibles economy. These are all key parts of a modern economic program, of a modern conservative economic framework that, uh, well, rooted in the, the insights and principles of people like Reagan and Thatcher and, and those who came before them, is responding to these new economic trends in a, in a dynamic way. If there's one outcome of this introspection occurring on the right in the aftermath of the 2019 election campaign, I hope this is it. I hope we recommit ourselves to the practice of applied conservatism and focus our conservative insights and principles into the economic challenges represented by the transition from a goods-producing economy to an intangible economy. I think if we do that, not only will we have greater political success, more fundamentally will contribute to a more inclusive, a more economically mobile, and ultimately more dynamic Canada. And I think that's um, that's been conservatism's contribution over the years, and I see no reason why it can't um, be our contribution into the future. So you've talked about the importance of uh, the resource economy in, in helping Canada kind of stave off some of those disruptive politics. What is the conservative response to the idea that's being pushed by other political parties in Canada that we need to get off of the resource economy? We need to get rid of using fossil fuels, move to solar and wind for our uh, electricity and, and uh, electric vehicles and all of that sort of thing. How do, what's a conservative answer to that problem? I think we should recognize that lower emitting sources of energy ought to be a long-term objective. But we should not be apologetic about the role of the resource sector as a principal source of economic inclusion in our economy. You know, if you accept that it is uh, the most important sector with respect to social mobility and economic inclusion, it doesn't mean that some of these other priorities like climate change or indigenous reconciliation or, or any other public priorities don't matter. But when tested against, you know, if you set the threshold that um, we're going to develop resources as a, as a way to extend opportunity across the economy, then the, the threshold for some of the other priorities is necessarily higher. 
I don't think we should apologize today for the fact that that uh, our natural resource sector has been this bulwark against labor market displacement and dislocation. I, I said in a speech a couple of weeks ago in Toronto, it's a bit perverse that the winners in the intangible economy, namely professionals in knowledge sectors with advanced degrees, are advocating for the destruction of the one sector left in our economy um, that's creating opportunity for the losers in the intangible economy. I think conservatives ought to remain. And in fact, if anything, reinforce that we are the champions of our natural resource sector. And of course, that will involve a focus on trying to reduce emissions intensity and so on. But for me, this issue and this question is really fundamental. Excellent. Well, it's a fascinating discussion, Sean, and thanks very much for for taking part of it on this show. Yeah, no, I'm grateful, guys. Thanks so much uh, for for having me and thanks so much for for what you're doing. I, I think this is so important. 10.3 is produced by Carson Jarama, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Sean Spear. His essay, part of the Right Now series, is available at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening.